Well, let me invite you to grab your Bibles and turn them open to the book of Philippians. If you do not have a Bible, know there's one provided in the pew in front of you. If you do not own a Bible, know that there's some on the table in the foyer. Uh, be sure to grab one of those on your way out. We'd love to gift you with your own copy of the Scriptures. Philippians chapter 2. If you're unfamiliar with the Bible, know that every Bible comes with a table of contents in the beginning. And so let me encourage you to utilize that table of contents to navigate this big book and find your way to Philippians, which is a small letter written by a guy named Paul from a prison cell to a church that he dearly loves in the city known as Philippi. And and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 18 tonight. And I have the privilege of walking us through that this evening. Let me read that passage for us and then we'll dive in. Beginning in verse 12 of Philippians chapter 2, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning. Your translation may say uh, grumbling or complaining. That you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, would you grant us grace as we consider this passage tonight? I pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice in and through the words found therein. I pray that you would open our hearts to receive and to respond to your word appropriately. God, I ask that you would do this all by your grace and for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, all my life growing up, I've always been uh, somewhat of a, a fan and curious about hip-hop culture. Uh, I don't know if it's different places I lived growing up in Louisiana. I spent some time in New Orleans and some other places, and so I was always kind of surrounded by various aspects of hip-hop culture. And, and there was a guy by the name of, of, uh, of William Branch. He's located out of Raleigh-Durham right now, but he's a hip-hop artist, and he's seeking to infuse within the hip-hop culture uh, some robust gospel uh, theology, and he's engaging that world. He's also known as the ambassador, if you've heard of him. That's kind of the name, the colloquy he goes by, and, and he was talking about hip-hop culture and emphasizing one of the unique features that's found within the hip-hop culture as it relates to this idea of glory. And he makes this statement. He says, you know, the hip-hop culture, know, they, they know that glory is meant to be seen. Glory is meant to be displayed. He said hip-hop has an embedded conviction. If you come from nothing and finally get everything, you should flaunt it. Thus, we hear slang terms like floss, swag, and shine. So if you got it, flaunt it is the idea. Or in the words of the New Orleans-based rap crew, Cash Money, get your shine on. Well, I share that with you this evening because there's a sense in which when you read this passage, there's a sense in which Paul is telling the church, get your shine on. There's a sense in which you and I have been brought from nothing and we've been given everything by grace in the gospel. 
And there's a sense in which his grace and his goodness towards us and Jesus is to cause us to shine. We as followers of Jesus in the world that is have the opportunity to get our shine on. That, that means that the glory of God in Jesus that has been poured into your life through the Holy Spirit, that glory, that goodness, that grace is to pop out of you. It is to shine through you. It is to be made visible to the watching world. That when the gospel takes root in a person's life, it is not intended to sit mute within. When the gospel takes root within a person's life, it is intended to produce fruit, to have an impact, tangible effects on our lives. And so tonight, as we consider this text, we're considering this whole idea of getting our shine on, wanting the glory of the gospel and its impact to be seen by the watching world and the effect that that can have. So you see in verse 12, the very first word that Paul uh, writes in this text is the word therefore, or your translation may say since. And that's an important word. And we got we to gotta, sometimes in reading through a passage, we have to slow down a little bit and consider some of the precision with which, uh, Paul, the, with which Paul chooses certain words. And this is one of those words where when you step into this passage, you kind of want to slow down and consider what that therefore is there for. Why is it there? And you know that therefore is a hinge word. It's a transitional statement. It's one of these words that says, don't go any further without looking first backwards. Everything that Paul is about to say to us about getting our shine on, it's all a reflection and the result of something that he's just written. And so we don't want to just jump into this passage that is making all these commands and these imperatives, work out your salvation, hold fast to the word of life, and so on and so forth. We want to kind of camp out on that therefore and look backwards before moving forwards. And what you consider when you do that is that everything that Paul's writing in this passage hinges on the song that the previous passage would present to us. If you were with us a couple of weeks ago, we looked at verses uh, 5 through 11 and we considered the attitude of Christ. And we said that verses 5 through 11, many scholars believe to be a, an ancient hymn. It's a lyric. It's a song that was quite familiar in the first century, so much so that as Paul's writing this letter and he's thinking about application and inspiring the church towards unity and humility and service and obedience, he just busts out on this song that reminds them of why they are what they are as the church. A song that emphasizes the story of Jesus, the story of the gospel, saying everything that he's about to say to us about getting our shine on, it's all done in the light of what Jesus accomplished for us. So you look at verse 5 and you consider the, the mind of Christ that, that is captured in the song beginning in verse 6. The mind of Christ, this, this one who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He didn't cling to his deity in that sense. He didn't leverage his rights as the creator of the universe to force the world into some state of being. No, he did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. It says that he made himself nothing. He took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. That not only did God assume human flesh and step into the world in which we live, not only did God walk the earth and experience humanity and life like all of us experience humanity and life, he did it as a servant. He didn't just come into the world. He came lowly into the world, journeying as a servant and being found in human form. It says that Jesus humbled himself. He lived a humble life and that humility would show up in his obedience he lived a humble life by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
that he obeyed his father. He deferred to his father's will in every moment of every day, so much so that he would go to the cross and die there to accomplish something salvific for you and I. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, but it didn't end there. The story of the gospel does not end with Jesus in the grave. It does not end with Jesus dead in a tomb. It ends with his resurrection and his exaltation. So Paul would go on in verse 9, Therefore, in light of that, God the Father has highly exalted him, highly exalted Jesus, and bestowed on Jesus the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's pretty comprehensive. Every creature will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That means king. That means ruler. That means the exalted one. And we are to confess this, profess this, acknowledge this all to the glory of God the Father, all in response to worshiping and honoring God. That's the reality. That's the song that's just been laid out before Paul hits that therefore in verse 12 saying everything that's about to come, it is all coming out of the reality of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, and his exaltation. That's the reality in which you and I live. Those of us who've bowed our knees now and we've professed our faith in Jesus, seeing him as Savior and Lord, we are living our lives in light of that reality. And that reality is to do something within us that is to make an impact in tangible, noticeable ways. And so he says, therefore, in light of that, then you can move forward. He says, therefore, my beloved. And then he encourages the Philippians. He commends them. He says, as you have always obeyed. I love that. I love that Paul says, therefore, my beloved. And in light of uh, the obedience of Jesus and the impact that that has had on your life, uh, I want to affirm you. I want to commend the fact that you have been obedient. You are trusting in Jesus. You are following Jesus. You've made much of Jesus. He's commending them for their obedience. Maybe he's thinking about Lydia, the first person to meet Jesus in Philippi, this woman who who would study the scriptures regularly with a small group of people right outside the city gates of Philippi. And Paul showed up and he joined their crew and he began to teach them, to show them how the Old Testament speaks to the reality of Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection. And so he would meet with them regularly and they would open the scriptures, study them, read them. And as that would happen, it says that Lydia in Acts chapter 16, that her heart opened up and she received the word that she heard. She believed that Jesus is the Christ. And that had an impact on her life, so much so that the church was birthed in that moment. And Lydia may have been the first beneficiary, the first person to leverage resources towards helping the church get started in that city. Maybe when he's commending obedience, he's commending this woman for her generosity. He's commending this woman for her willingness to open up her home and to share her resources to support the church and to care for those who would come to trust in Jesus in that city. So he's commending them for their obedience, saying, this gospel has made an impact on you. But notice what he says next. Not only does he commend them as you have always obeyed, he says, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Not only did they obey when he was with them, Paul's now encouraging them to continue on in their obedience, even though he's not physically with them anymore. Paul's in a prison cell writing these words. And he's commending their obedience and encouraging them to continue on in their obedience. You want to know what the goal of discipleship is? 
You want to know what the goal of discipleship is for us as we follow Jesus together and for those that we are investing in and we're pouring the gospel into and that we're serving and loving with the gospel, the goal of discipleship is maybe described as untethered obedience, meaning our obedience should not be tethered necessarily to a specific leader. Our obedience should not be tethered to a specific situation or a specific time of the week. Meaning we don't just worship Jesus when we gather together in this space on a Sunday evening. We don't just obey Jesus when we are with one another. We obey Jesus when we're all alone in our rooms. We obey Jesus in a way that is untethered, in a way that our obedience isn't ultimately dependent upon the person who initially introduced us to Jesus. Anytime you disciple someone, you want to disciple them towards an obedience that doesn't depend upon you. So that if you ever leave or something, if you're ever removed from their life as it relates to close proximity, their obedience will continue. Paul's queuing in on this when he says, not only did you obey when I was there, but I want to hear that you're obeying now that I'm not. Your obedience should be untethered. I was interviewed for a magazine a couple of weeks ago about church planting in the Northwest. And they were talking about our story and they were asking me questions. Well, when do you think... Uh, the Hallows Church has become a church. When, when do you cease becoming a church plant? Or when would any church probably cease being a church plant and start firing in that church identity, whatever that means? And, and I was listening to the question, and as I was thinking about what she was asking, I, I considered these words, and I, and I made the statement to her. I said, you know, what I think about that is a church plant's progress her obedience, when we start a new church and we start seeing Jesus produce change in us and doing things through us in the city, the viability of a church plant may be discerned when that founding leader leaves. And if that founding leader is able to leave and the church continues to go and obedience continues to happen, that's when we know things have happened in a disciple-making capacity. And so I would say church plants would, would see their viability when their original starters, planters, leaders transition when they leave. And, and that's not a veiled saying, I'm leaving anytime soon. I do not have that intention or that calling or anything like that. I'm just saying, like, it would be great that if I did ever leave, that this church would proceed. Because this church is not dependent upon me. We want untethered obedience. We want to continue following Jesus regardless of who's necessarily leading the charge as it relates to our, our discipleship. You might say this also in your parenting. What's the goal of gospel parenting? The goal of your parenting should probably be to disciple your kids to the point where they're willing to obey Jesus even when you're not there. That you're willing to, they're willing to obey obey Jesus when they graduate high school, when they leave home and they go off to college and they're still loving Jesus and wanting to follow Jesus. That should be the goal of our discipleship, untethered obedience, an obedience that isn't dependent upon one specific leader or a mom or a dad, but a discipleship that matures enough so that that discipleship stands on its own and obedience happens in an untethered fashion. Paul is seeing this in the church of Philippi, and he's commending them for that. And he, he says, I, I just want to hear that you're being obedient, that you're living under what's been heard, all that you've learned about Jesus, that you're still carrying that out. That's what the word obey means in that text, to live under what you've heard. He's saying, I just want to hear that that's still going. And, and then he goes on. He, and it's important that you notice that that commendation in verse 12 precedes the command, that he commends the church before he commands more from the church. 
Before he turns the corner, he says, okay, now work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. That's one of those verses that can keep you up at night. That's one of those verses that can sometimes unsettle the soul and the sensitive conscience really wrestles with what does it mean to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? I thought I was saved by grace, and and that seems to go against the grain of God's grace that I've heard about, that I've sat under for so long. Now, Now what do I do? Well, again, notice the relationship. Commendation precedes that commandment. He's identified evidences of grace in the lives of those in Philippi before moving into this emphasis on working out your salvation. And when it comes to how we make disciples in our lives, it's important that we get that sequence right, that our commendation of others will precede the commands we make of others, that we would identify evidences of grace in the lives of those around us before really ratcheting up the call of discipleship or layering on another layer of obedience or expectation or calling when it relate, as it relates to their following Jesus. We want commendation to precede commandment. That's a good sequence. That's a sequence that I think we should model and embrace and embody in the life of the church. But notice that he doesn't only say work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He then assures them again. He he never Paul never wanders away too far from grace. So he commends them at the beginning of verse 12. Then at the end of verse or in verse 13, he comes back around to God's grace at work in their lives. And so that command work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's nestled between those two dynamics. Identifying grace, now work out your salvation with fear and trembling, meaning continue wanting in your obedience, continue to let the gospel make an impact on your life to show up in noticeable ways. And then he he brings it back to grace. He says in verse 13, For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. To will and to work for his good pleasure. God is at work to produce that dynamic. Now, again, one of the things we want to pay attention to as we're reading the scriptures is we want to pay attention to the precision with the words that Paul uses. And one word that it's very important that when he makes this command at the end of verse 12, that he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. He does not say work for your salvation with fear and trembling. He does not say work to attain your salvation with fear and trembling. He's saying, look, God has done a work in you and he's still doing it. Now just work it out. Let that which God has put in you show up in your life. Don't keep it hidden, so to speak. Don't keep it muted. Let it shine. Let it come out. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Now, that word salvation is a big word. Salvation is a big word. It, it comes with different tenses when you read about salvation in the New Testament. There's a past tense dynamic to salvation. We call that justification. We call that when you become a Christian, God declares you right. Not on the basis of your righteousness, but on the basis of Jesus' righteousness. That's the verdict that has been rendered. Pastor Jeff taught us about that last, last week. That's the past tense of our salvation. But there's also a future tense in our salvation. It's what the Bible calls glorification. There's coming a moment when we are given new bodies and we indwell and inhabit a new heavens and a new earth. We enjoy God in an unhindered fashion for all of eternity. That's when all is said and done, when Christ returns and he makes all things new in, a, in an obvious and a full sense. So you have a past tense to our salvation. You have a present tense to our salvation. But you all, I mean, a future tense, but you also have a present tense. There is activity, there is work taking place right now as part of our salvation. This is what the Bible calls sanctification. 
Meaning every person who puts their faith in Jesus, who's declared right with God, whom God has deposited the gospel, they are then launched into a process, a journey, whereby they are being transformed progressively over time more and more into the image of Christ. So there's a past tense, there's a future tense, and there's a present tense. And what Paul's zeroing in here in this passage has to do with that present tense aspect of salvation. Saying we are working out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. The gospel's changing us. That's what he's saying. You might compare it to the difference between a light switch in a dark room and a sunrise. Salvation, when you become a Christian, it's like a light switch is turned on in your soul. You walk into a dark room, you turn on the light, and all of a sudden you're seeing things you could not see prior to that moment. Well, when you become a Christian, it's as though the Holy Spirit has come in, turned the light switch on so that you are seeing Jesus as Lord. You're seeing his life and his death and his resurrection as beautiful and as worthy. So you trust him and you love him and you, and you want to follow him. That's the initial salvation. That's past, so to speak. But then there's also this present dynamic that's not so much a light switch. Sanctification is more like a sunrise. You know that a sunrise rises over time. It's gradual. And as the light, as the sun begins to rise on the horizon and it begins to scale the heights before reaching its peak, over time, its light begins to shine wider and fuller and further. And over time, the sun rises. Well, when it comes to this idea of sanctification... Our sanctification is a lot like a sunrise. It's a process that God is working in us that is being worked out by us. And over the course of time, more light begins to shine. More beauty begins to flow from us. We become more loving, more humble, more unified, more servant-oriented, more others-focused. We love God more faithfully. We love one another more compassionately and patiently. That's part of the sanctification process. It's the sun rising in our souls. And so when it comes to this present tense dynamic, understand that we're talking about a process. We're talking about a progressive movement that happens as you press into your relationship with Jesus in light of his grace towards you. Now, there are some understandings of sanctification that I want to kind of dismiss in our minds because there's some tough teachings about what it means to grow as a follower of Jesus and what this sanctification process looks like. And And two examples or two approaches that I would like for us to avoid as followers of Jesus, one of which might be described as the computer software approach. And there's this understanding of sanctification that says that when you become a Christian or if you have a second experience with Jesus at some point in time in your journey, a deeper experience with God, then it's as though practical holiness or Christ-likeness is downloaded onto the hard drive of your soul and it is there and it is operating fully and perfectly. And it happens in an instant. It happens in a moment. And that teaching, unfortunately, unsettles a lot of souls and a lot of consciences because they hear that teaching and they think, well, what's wrong with me? I don't feel like I'm practically perfect yet. I don't feel like I'm practically holy or practically righteous. And I still struggle with temptation. I still, uh, my, my, my anger, it, it, although it's improved, it's still there to some degree. And, and so we have this mentality that says sanctification should happen in an instant, as simple as downloading a program or some software so that it begins operating in a way that's fully realized. It's not unlike that movie. John's always getting on me bringing it up. I'm sorry if I keep ruining movies for you, but if you haven't seen The Matrix, uh, The Matrix back in the 90s, it's like when Neo was undergoing training for the role that he would play in the story. 
And he plugs into the matrix, and the guy who is plugging him in starts downloading or uploading uh, various forms of martial arts. And it happened in an instant. It just was downloaded or uploaded into his life so that when he left that chair, he was able to do things he had never done before. He was able, he knew all the for, various forms of martial arts and drunken boxing and all types of things. He was, it was right there. It was realized fully and completely in his life in that moment. Well, we don't want to think about sanctification that way because that's not how the New Testament talks about sanctification. Sanctification, according to the New Testament, is a process. It happens over time. It's one that requires patience. It's one that requires a steady, persistent reliance upon God's grace. But then the second approach that we want to avoid is, that might be described as a computer software approach, the other approach that we want to avoid may be described as the white-knuckle approach. You know what it means to go white-knuckle, don't you? You're driving in the streets of Seattle and all the traffic's driving you crazy. People are cutting you off and you, you're late for an appointment, so you have to speed up to get yourself further along in the journey so you can get to where you need to be. And, and what do you do? You start white-knuckling that steering wheel. You grab it, you cling to it, you clench it down, and, and your knuckles go white. Why? They go white because you're applying so much force that the blood has left your hands. And so when it comes to the white-knuckle approach to salvation, understand that this approach says, okay, I'm going to put my faith in the gospel. I'm going to trust in the death of Jesus on the cross to get me into a right relationship with God. But from that point further, I'm going to white-knuckle it. The blood becomes irrelevant. So that we begin living our life as though we don't need the cross. We start growing as trying to grow as followers of Jesus apart from a central focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus. The blood of Jesus becomes irrelevant. It becomes absent. It becomes unnecessary to our growth as followers of Jesus. So we don't want to take a white knuckle approach either. We don't want to white knuckle this thing called the Christian life. We want to take what might be described as a grace saturated dependent approach. A grace-saturated, dependent approach that says, I recognize I'm to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. I, I realize that I'm a work in progress, but I'm also confident that God is at work in me. He's working in me both to will and to work according to his good pleasure. Now, when it says that God works in you in that capacity, that word work is different from the work that Paul calls us to in the verse 13. That word work, as it relates to God, it's the word where we get energy. He's saying our growth as followers of Jesus, the working out of our salvation, it is energized by God's grace in our lives. So that he's doing things in us, producing life and change that is to show up and to show out in our, in our lives. But it's all coming by his grace. That doesn't mean you don't pray. It doesn't mean you don't read the scriptures. That don't mean you don't confess sin and repent of sin. It just means that you pray, you read the scriptures, you repent, you confess sin all in the atmosphere of God's grace. Recognizing that he's changing our desires. He's giving us desires that say, you know, I want to start doing the things that would honor Jesus. And so I want to explore that. But not only has he given us new desires where he's at work in our will or our desires, he's saying, I'm also giving you the ability. You're, my grace in you is going to empower you to do things you never thought you could do. My grace in you is going to produce change in you that you never thought possible to will and to work the, the want to and the can do. This is what God's grace is doing within the lives of everyone who's currently trusting in the gospel. So we press into this by living not a white knuckle Christian life. And we press into this not living an uber passive downloadable approach to the Christian life. We press into this through humble submission and faith in the grace of God. 
Paul understood this very well. That's why he creates this tension that we see in this text that says, okay, I'm working out, God's working in, which one is it? Paul's like, yes, it's both. At the same time, all the time, God is at work in you and his work in you is doing things that's showing up and showing out in your life. Let me give you a few examples. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 29, writing to that church, Paul would say, for this I toil, for this I labor, for this I'm going for it. And he's speaking there of the faith of the church he's writing to. I'm going for your faith. I'm going for your growth. I'm giving everything to my calling as an apostle. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, all God's energy. It's the same word in Philippians 2, that he powerfully works in within me. I'm laboring, I'm toiling, But in the end, I know that it's God's grace in me. It's his energy. It's his power. It's his strength. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 10, same thing. Paul says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. That's perspective. Paul's saying, yes, I'm laboring. I'm pouring myself out for the good of others and the glory of God. But I'm recognizing when I put my head on the pillow at the end of the day, that it's not me, it's the grace of God at work within me, saying that God has changed my desires and he's shaping my desires. He's given me a want to follow him, a want to obey him, and God is giving me the ability, the can-do when it comes to carrying out his calling and living under his word. You see, this thing that God is working in us, that he expects to be worked out of us, it's all to be done according to his good pleasure. And God has not called us into a life that we cannot lead. It's not as though God has called us to do something and not supplied us with the resources needed to do it. It's not like if I told you, go outside, find the biggest evergreen tree in the city or go outside the city and find one if you need to and cut it down. And you look at me and you say, well, how am I supposed to do that? And then I hand you a hatchet. And you take that hatchet and you go to the tree wondering, how how in the world is this going to happen? It's not going to happen. You come back and you say, that's impossible. You've called me to do something I cannot do. Therefore, I don't want to do it. So I take the hatchet and I then give you a handsaw. You say, okay, well, I don't think this is much better. You go and, and you have the same negative deflating experience. And you come back and you say, this is dumb as well. You're calling me to do something I cannot do. And if I cannot do it, I don't want to do it. And you start complaining and grumbling and wrestling with it. So you come back and you hand me the hacksaw and then I hand you an axe. And you're like, okay, that may be one step better, but I'm still very pessimistic about this. You're telling me to do something I cannot do. You're not giving me the the resources needed to do what you've called me to do. And so I say, okay, well, I'll take the axe and I'll give you a chainsaw. And there you're thinking, now you're talking. Now things things can happen. But when God calls you to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, He's supplied you with all that you need to do so. He's put everything into you that you need. Peter would say as much in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-4, through 4, that God's divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. He's granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Christ, who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them, through trusting the promises of God, believing the gospel, leaning into that, So that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. There's so much encouragement in this text because so often we think that our ability to grow as followers of Jesus is hindered by a lack of desire or a lack of ability, thinking, well, we've got to find some other input. 
We need something else to come in and to trigger growth in our lives. But understand, when you become a follower of Jesus and that light switch is turned on in your soul and God gives you his presence, his spirit, his power, he has deposited everything in you that you will ever need for all the days of your life to grow as a follower of Jesus. This is what Paul's getting after when he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling for God, the creator of the universe, is at work in you. His power is available to you. And he's working on your will. He's working on your work. He's leading you to do things that would please him. And over the course of your life, you get to press into that reality. You see, over the course of my ministry, I've had the opportunity to counsel people who've really been struggling with different things at different points. And, and at different times when, I'm, when I meet a disciple who's having a hard time, maybe they quote this passage, I don't think I'm working out my salvation with fear and trembling. I'm not sure God loves me because I can't seem to shake this temptation. I'm really struggling with this, that, or the other. In those conversations, my counsel tends to be the same. Not every time, but they, it tends to be the same. I look at them and I say, you know what? I, I'm not concerned by your struggles. I'm, I'd be more concerned if you weren't struggling. I'd be more concerned if there was no sense of being bothered by sin in your life. I, I, I hear this desire coming out of you. You want to obey. You want to shake this. That's a good thing. And I'm going to interpret that as evidence of God's grace in your life. So you have this desire. Now we need to pray for God to help us to help us access the power needed to shake that temptation and to make some progress and to advance a little bit in your life and in your discipleship. See, I'm not so much struggled by the person who professes faith in Jesus who's struggling. I am more concerned by the person who's not. I'm more concerned by the person who calls themselves a disciple and they aren't bothered by sin. They aren't bothered by struggle. And so I want to encourage us, this whole idea of working out our salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in us, both the will and to work according to his good pleasure. This dynamic, when it is happening, you will find yourself having days where you are not at peace with things. You will be disrupted about sin in your life, and that's a very, very good thing. So Paul here is emphasizing this dynamic of God's grace in us, producing new desires and a new work, and we're learning how to lean into that. But he's saying, and as we do, as we work out what God is working in us, that's when we begin to shine bright. This is when we begin to shine bright, which is where he goes in verse 14. He gets real practical. He says the way that your salvation is going to show up and show out in your life is when you get into verse 14 and you start doing all things without grumbling or complaining. He says, you do all things without grumbling or, com or complaining or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish, in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. That just means that the generation that, that surrounds us is off-key and is moving in a direction that isn't healthy. He's saying, I, I want you to set a different path. I want you to shine a different light because you are the children of God. And you're going to be children of God without blemish. You're going to be children of God who shines as lights or stars in the world because you're holding fast to the word of life. You're trusting the gospel and it's making an impact. And that's going to carry you through to the end of your days. So this practical outworking of shining bright, he brings up this issue of not grumbling or complaining. Now there are three reasons. Some of us may be tempted to grumble or complain and we're not really progressing in that direction perhaps right now. Three reasons why I think that may be. One reason is... We may be grumbling or complaining because other people do not share our opinions or our preferences. It's amazing how when we find ourselves in community, journeying with Jesus with others, how opinions and preferences that, 
that we do not share or that we hold and nobody else shares, how quick that is to unsurface grumbling and complaining. And we start wrestling with, um, we struggle with discerning the difference between truth and preference, between fact and opinion. And if we can't really discern the difference between those two, we're going to be prone and tempted to grumble and complain. You see, one of the things about life in this church that I want us to hold on to, there are some things that we're going to hold as a church with a clenched fist. We are going to unwaver on. We're, we're going to hold the gospel with a clenched fist. We're going to hold our commitment to the scriptures with a clenched fist. We're going to hold our calling to make disciples of all nations with a clenched fist. We're going to hold truth as we learn it through the study of the scriptures with a clenched, clenched fist. But there's a lot of things that we're going to hold with an open hand. There's a lot of things that fall in the realm of preference or opinion. And we're going to discern between those two. And if things are a matter of preference or a matter of opinion, we're going to hold them loosely. We're not going to grumble and complain. We're not going to whine about those things. We're going to hold the gospel, clenched fist. Everything else, open-handed. And so I would encourage you to join us in that process, not only on the church level, but in your own life. How can you hold truth with a clenched fist? And how can you become more open-handed with your preferences and with your opinions? If you can get there you'll find grumbling and complaining shrinking in your life. And you'll find the light of the gospel shining more brightly in and through you. A second reason why we may be tempted to grumble and complain is our sense of justice sometimes is offended by God's grace. We grumble and we complain when our sense of justice is offended by God's grace. And I share this with you because the same words that Paul is using about grumbling and complaining shows up in a parable that Jesus tells in Matthew chapter 20. There's a story that Jesus tells about the grace of God and he imagines a vineyard, and in this vineyard, you have a bunch of laborers. And these laborers are going to work in the vineyard, and at the end of the day, the owner of the vineyard is going to come and pay them for their labors. He's going to give them their wages. But what's interesting about the parable is that you had some guys who worked in the vineyard all day long. They showed up at sunrise, and they worked till sunset. You had another group that showed up a little later on, maybe around lunchtime, and they started the work day then and continued on. Then you had other guys who showed up with the last hour of the day and they, and they joined the labor and they started working in the vineyard. But then when it got time for them to be paid and go home, the owner of the vineyard stepped up and he gave every single one of them the same wage. And that frustrated people in the parable. And we are told that, that they begin to grumble at the landowner. They begin to complain. That's not just, that's not right. But then the landowner in the parable would respond to them, Do you begrudge my generosity? Do you understand that everything I give you is generous and grace? Do you begrudge my grace? One reason we may grumble and complain is when our sense of justice is offended by God's grace, when God begins to treat people in ways that we think they do not deserve. And if we ever move in that direction, it's because we've lost sight of the fact that God has treated us far better than we deserve. If you want grumbling and complaining to shrink in your life, then stop looking over the fence at others and complaining about God's grace in them so that life and light in you is dimmed or in some ways choked out. We don't want to be offended by God's grace. We don't want our sense of justice to be offended. If that is the case, then we won't find harmony in our relationships. You think about Jesus' command to forgive those who, who have offended you. A lot of times when we are offended by another person, we want justice in those relationships. We want them to feel the weight of their offense. That's why we don't remove it by forgiving them or loving them or being kind to them or hanging out with them again. We just want them to feel the weight of that. We want justice for them and grace for us. But Jesus is saying, no, we should want grace for everyone. And grumbling and complaining will shrink when you and I 
get to the point where our sense of justice is no longer offended by God's grace, we recognize that everything that good that comes into our lives is grace. We don't deserve anything good that God blesses us with. And then the third reason why we may grumble and complain is that such is sometimes our sense of entitlement is offended by God's providence. When our sense of entitlement is offended by God's providence, meaning we sometimes think that we should have something other than what we do. And if we don't have what we think we should have, then that sense of entitlement will start grumbling and complaining. We'll start grumbling against God because maybe our lives are not unfolding according to plan. Somebody else is getting the promotion. Somebody else's newborn is sleeping through the night while ours is up every two hours. And we start grumbling and complaining, a sense of entitlement, being offended by God's providence. Not recognizing that God in his providence orchestrates every event and circumstance in our lives, even our bad choices, to produce good in us and to produce good through us. This was the story of Israel. The language in Philippians chapter 2 is an an echo of Exodus. There's a moment when God redeems Israel, takes them out of Egypt, and he's leading them to the promised land. Not three days into the journey, they are in the wilderness, and they start grumbling and complaining against God, thinking his providence has led them into a point that they did not desire and that they did not deserve. They weren't recognizing how God had brought them into the wilderness to refine them and to produce change in them, to shake Egypt out of them, so to speak. And so they start grumbling and complaining. Their sense of entitlement is offended by the providence of God. And I can't help but wonder if your sense of entitlement has been offended by God's providence. So much so that you're unable to see his goodness towards you, even in the tough seasons of life. Even in the trying times of life, that those, in many ways, have more potential of producing Christ-likeness in us than any other situation or season we may ever find ourselves in. So you think about it, married couples who are having a hard time getting along with your spouse. You feel like they pulled the wool over your eyes. You didn't know what you are getting into when you said yes at the altar. And now life is hard and you're wondering, you're grumbling and complaining. Your sense of entitlement, you deserve a better spouse or a better marriage. And you're wondering what's wrong. Well, let me encourage you to press into the grace of that opportunity. Press into the grace that God can work in you to produce good for you even in a tough marriage or a tough parenting season or maybe singleness. You're so frustrated with God's providence that you haven't gotten married yet and you're wondering, well, what do I do now? God's providence hasn't come through for me and providing me with a spouse. Let me encourage you. Press into the grace that is available to you in your singleness and the unique opportunity you have right now to show the world that Jesus is more satisfying than any other person in the universe, including a husband, including a wife. So you have a unique opportunity to showcase the gospel, Jesus' satisfaction. Lean into that reality, and maybe God hasn't given you a spouse yet because he's wanting to work that out in you. He's wanting that light to shine. And so Paul here is encouraging not only a working out dynamic and a shining bright dynamic. He's saying those attitudes of grumbling and complaining kind of dim the light of the gospel in our lives. And we don't want that to happen. So we want to press in. We want to recognize God's grace in us to reduce the amount of grumbling and complaining that may be happening in our lives right now. And then that brings us to the last image that he picks up in verse 17 as we wrap this up. Verse 17, he says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. So he moves from working out to shining bright to this third image of being offered up. 
He, he changes gears. He uses new images here, referring to the sacrificial system. And he calls himself a drink offering. And this drink offering is like a libation. Back in the day when somebody would offer up a sacrifice, they'd take a glass of wine or something like that, pour it on the sacrifice, and it would create smoke and fill the room with a particular aroma. Paul's saying, that's what I am in your life, referring to the church at Philippi. Saying they're offering up themselves as a sacrifice to God there that is holy and acceptable, pleasing to God, as in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Paul is saying, as you're doing that, I'm pouring myself out for you. Together, we're offering ourselves up. We're worshiping our God. We're saying, I'm going to live my life, not for myself, but for the good of those around me. He's saying, I'm pouring myself out for your benefit. And you are pouring your, the sacrificial offering of your faith is for my benefit because I'm encouraged by your faith. I, my joy is being completed by your obedience. It's being intensified by your obedience. There's interdependence here. It's not tethered faith. It's interdependence saying, look, I'm giving myself fully for your benefit. And you're giving yourself fully to Jesus. And that's bringing benefit to my life because we're interdependent as it relates to being offered up. This is what Paul would say elsewhere in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he makes that statement in view of God's mercy in light of the gospel, meaning there's only one reasonable response we could ever give to the story of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. And it is this, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Offer yourself up. And remember, all of this is coming out of that hymn where Jesus emptied himself for our benefit, and now Paul is saying, I'm emptying myself for your benefit. And the church is emptying their, themselves for his benefit so that he'll know that he didn't labor in vain. So the progress of the gospel will continue even if he doesn't ever get out of jail. And so this idea of offering it up, it, it's recognizing the reality that the gospel has turned all of life into an altar. And the gospel has turned our bodies into animated sanctuaries. Your life right now is a place where heaven and earth collides. Your life right now is where the kingdom of heaven appears on earth as it is in heaven. This is the reality in which we live. When we offer ourselves up, we're living for the good of those around us for that purpose. Saying, I'm giving everything to you, Jesus, because Jesus, you've given everything to me. So we work it out, we shine bright, and we offer up. That's the rhythm of the Christian life, all undergirded by the grace of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we recognize that we are never more like Christ than when we are laying our lives down, even our rights down, for the good and the glory of others. I pray that you would make us a people who are so affected by your grace and your goodness towards us in Jesus that we start shining brightly as we work out our salvation and as we offer up our lives to you in response to the gospel, God, would you, would you cause us to shine? Would you let your glory be seen in and through the Hallows Church? Father, as we come to the table of these next few moments, I pray that you would remind us of how you, Jesus, poured everything out for us. And we now go and we live in light of that reality, pouring ourselves out, offering ourselves up in response to you. God, we love you, we trust you, and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.